Under the wide and starry sky, dig the grave and let me lie. Glad that I live and gladly die, now lay me down with the will. This is the verse you grave for me. Here he lies where he longed to be. Home is the sailor, home from the sea, and the hunter, home from the hill. Robert Louis Stevenson, 1869. Name of the poem is Requiem. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. That poem was read by today's guest, John Gibson. He is a river outfitter on the Shenandoah River. His company is called Down River Canoe Company, and they are in Bentonville, Virginia, on Indian Hollow Road, or of course, Indian Holler Road. You can find out information about how to uh, book a canoe or whatnot at downriver.com. Before we get into a little bit about this episode for an intro, you may have noticed that there's been a long hiatus on the podcast. We've had kind of a, um, a life situation that we did not see coming where we ended up moving. So we moved from the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, where this podcast takes place, we moved to the Allegheny Highlands of West Virginia. And we're going to be exploring that through other podcast guests in the future. So for this episode, we're just going to stick to the topic, which is the Shenandoah. Now, as we move forward with the podcast, um, I'm going to be looking into probably getting a a Patreon or something like that set up. Um, it's something I really don't want to do, but um, I put so much time into these podcasts, especially with driving, because I want to do them all in person and, you know, even buying the sound effects for the episodes that it would be super helpful if you guys really like the podcast to kind of have some kind of small financial support to keep this thing going. Cause I, because I do find it extremely meaningful to me and I've gotten a lot of really um, potent messages from people who are who really appreciate hearing these these stories from the guests, and that's what this is all about. It's about the guests' stories. Um, well, let's get to today's episode. So this one is really um, one that's focused on history. The Shenandoah River. I feel like I need to describe a little bit before we get into this episode, because um, you know we did two episodes on the Hudson River Valley. And the difference between the Shenandoah and the Hudson is so extreme that if if you're not from Washington, D.C. area, you're not from Northern Virginia or Virginia or Maryland, and you've never been on the Shenandoah River, well, I've got to lay down the groundwork so you, can, so you understand what we're talking about. So the Hudson River Valley is, I believe at one point, it's like a mile wide, okay? And there are, you know, throughout history, there were three masted ships going going up and down it, Okay. And down where the Hudson River Valley meets 
Manhattan today, there are, there are cruise liners docked. So that is not what we're talking about today. The Shenandoah is extremely shallow in comparison. You, at the very end of the podcast, John says the average is the average depth is three feet, so like waist deep, and there are plenty of points that are ankle deep. And if you're in a canoe in the summer, even a kayak, there are spots where on rippling rock, the as the water ripples across a rock, which I believe in in history they called these river reefs. You got to get out and you got to drag your canoe or drag your kayak. You run aground. So that's what makes today's episode so interesting. Because if you're on the huge Hudson River and we do a podcast about the commercial boatmen, yeah, that's kind of interesting, but it's kind of common. Whereas hearing about this tiny river like the Shenandoah and hearing how how commerce went up and down this shallow river in the 1700s, now my interest is peaked. And that's a lot of what we're going to get into today. Now, John puts 20,000 people, he said, about on average a year on the river. And if you go through the Shenandoah River Valley in the summer, you will see that river completely packed with tubers, you know, like a lazy river. They're on a tube. They got a cooler floating. It's a hangout for the summer. If you live in the New York area, it's probably similar in the Delaware Water Gap. So if you come and visit the Shenandoah, I feel having listened to this episode and you're lazily floating down the river, you have just a totally new perspective. And there are stretches that are nothing but nature where you can feel like you're floating into the past. And there are sections where you see a lot of campsites and campers, and you could just you know, you could use your imagination and imagine those being the old river shanties of the 1700s. Now, I wanted to clear up, uh, at one point we talk about the wild reputation of Front Royal Virginia back in the day. Supposedly, this was a meeting spot of of not only the rivermen, but of of people running wagons, the wagon men, and people coming in with cattle. And it was kind of a frontier town in the 1700s and early 1800s. It was notorious. Um, everywhere I look, I cannot find a, a firsthand account of what it was like. That's what I, I was hoping to find. I called the local library. I called the Heritage Society. I could not find a historic description of the town. But it had this wonderful name, which you'll hear in the podcast. And it was supposedly filled with boozing and fighting and shooting. But but all I can find are a few sentences here and there about this. At one point in the podcast, I say how I had read that there was this description by a preacher of the town. I can't quite find that. There is supposedly a historical preacher who did um, use the nickname the fun nickname of the town, but I can't find the actual account. So I kind of might be getting a little fanciful when I talked about that. Now, um, John describes the boatman culture, and I thought it would be super interesting to read um, from some historical examples around his descriptions. So when you hear me reading, I am reading the um, from the Shenandoah River Atlas, 
Rediscovering the History of the Shenandoah and Its Branches. This was prepared by W.E. Trout III for the Virginia Canals and Navigation Society. You can order this through um, Friends of the North Fork of the Shenandoah River. Uh, just Google that. You can go on their website if you want to order this atlas. It has all these um, like historical tales about the river. It's got maps. It talks about the, these special boats, which you'll hear about. Um, so I read from that book a handful. Um, let's see. Yeah, if you want to be get if you want to get involved with the education, the conservation of the river, again, go to uh, Friends of the North Fork of the Shenandoah River. Go to their website. Now, while I couldn't find an example of a description of the town, I did want to start this episode with two readings. Uh, the first one I'm going to read is a legend, so folklore, about the name of the Shenandoah River. Now, I found, you know, scouring the internet on Google Books and whatnot, I found, um, I'm, I've been trying to search all sorts of stuff, and I found this um, from a woman's novel. Um, she has a book called Song of the Shenandoah. Her name is Brenda George is the author. And it appears that she is uh, quite astute with her with her history. So this is the legend as written in the back of her book. Now, I also found like an academic paper saying there is there is no there is no proof that this is an actual legend or or even um that the word Shenandoah comes from any of the tribes that were in that area. Um, but here it is as a piece of folklore, and I appreciate it as a piece of folklore. The second book I wanted to do a little reading from as an intro is a book from 1907. It's called Life in Old Virginia, a description of Virginia, more particularly the Tidewater section, narrating many incidents relating to the manners and customs of old Virginia so fast disappearing as a result of the war between the states, together with many humorous stories. Whew, what a title on that one. So I wanted to read, um, in that there's a description of um, the first colonists descending into the Shenandoah River Valley. Both of these I find very folkloric and wonderful in their own right. So let's begin, and then we'll get right into this podcast episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. According to ancient legend, Shenandoah means daughter of the stars. After the great spirit made the world, the morning stars came together on the shores of a quiet silver lake bordered with blue mountains, the most beautiful place they could see. Hovering above the quiet waters and lighting the mountaintops with their robes of fire, the stars sang their songs of joy and pledged to gather here every thousand years. One time when the stars were singing, there came a mighty crashing. A great rock in the mountain wall tore asunder, and through the deep opening, the lake waters began to pour and rush to the sea. As time passed, the stars looked over the earth for another place to meet. They finally agreed upon a lovely valley through which a winding river ran. 
Suddenly the stars realized that this valley had been the bed of their beautiful lake and that the blue mountains around it were the same ones upon which they had first cast their robes of light in ages past. The stars were so joyous they placed the brightest jewels from their crowns in the river where they still lie and sparkle. And ever since that day, the river and the valley have been called Shenandoah, Daughter of the Stars. In 1710 came Spotswood as governor. At once he revived the iron industry of Virginia, which had been first begun some 90 years before. He established an iron furnace at Germana, not far from the present city of Fredericksburg, soon after he had begun his famous expeditions across the mountains. With some members of his staff, he left Williamsburg and drove in his coach to Germana. Here he left his coach and with other gentlemen who joined him, proceeded on horse along the Rappahannock River, and in 36 days from the time he left Williamsburg, he scaled the mountains near Swift Run Gap. The company descended the mountains on the west side and reached the Shenandoah River. Proceeding by the river, they found a place where it was fordable, crossed it, and there on the western bank, the governor formally took possession for King George I of England. After eight weeks, he returned to Williamsburg, having traveled in all 440 miles. It is hard for us to believe that less than 200 years ago, when Spotswood entered the beautiful valley of Virginia, it was the haunt of bears, wolves, panthers, wildcats, and buffaloes. The Indians did not live there, but preserved it for their hunting grounds. Those who accompanied Spotswood on the famous expedition have been known in history as the Knights of the Golden Horseshoe. At that time in eastern Virginia, on account of the sandy soil, few horseshoes were used. But when Spotswood and his expedition set out from Fredericksburg over the rocky, untraveled wilderness, it was found necessary that the horses should be shod. Upon the return from his journey, the governor presented each of his companions with a golden horseshoe, covered with valuable stones resembling heads of nails, with the inscription on one side, Sic Juvat Transcendere Montes, translated to, Thus it is a pleasure to cross the mountains. The climbing of the mountains was regarded in those days as a dangerous and wonderful undertaking, and it was noised abroad throughout the colony. In this expedition was an ensign in the British army, John Fontaine, who wrote an account of the trip. After telling of the crossing of the Shenandoah River, he said, It was very deep. The main course of the water is north. It is four score yards wide in the narrowest part. We drank some health on the other side and returned after which I went a-swimming in it. I got some grasshoppers and fish, and another and I, we catched a dish of fish, some perch, and a kind of fish they called chub. The others went a-hunting and killed a deer and turkeys. I graved my name on a tree by the riverside, and the governor buried a bottle with a paper enclosed on which he writ that he took possession of this place in the name and for King George I of England. So we're in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia in a, a rural, very rural area in the Page Valley section. Uh, we're technically in Warren County, 10 miles south of Front Royal, in a little village called Bentonville. 
and with uh, unincorporated has a couple of hundred people and uh, we're uh, currently down right by the river and um, uh, talking to you on this beautiful spring day it's incredibly beautiful yes yeah, so to paint a little bit of a picture so it seems as though um, we are between two mountain chains you got the Shenandoah National Park on one side you're here down in this valley with the Shenandoah River, and then there's a section of uh, George Washington National Forest, which is the mountains right above the river and right above your um, yes. outfitting so shop. Those mountains are called the Massanutten. Really? Yeah. So, I did not know that. So legend has it that uh, uh, very early on when the first settlers were coming into the valley, uh, 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 an aristocrat came and uh, was looking at the valley and saw the mountains and... Um, he asked a slave that was there, a slave was the name of those mountains, and the slave said Massanutten, meaning master nothing. Wow. And so that's how they got their name. And so uh, now they're, uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a good story. Folklore. Yeah. So I told you on the phone, like the, the history elements are what blow me away. So that's the Massanutten Mountain. I didn't know that that's what it was called. I've hunted in there because it's public land, yes. um, but not too, with too much success. But one thing I wanted to bring up today is history and how over like the past year or so, I've been just um, thinking a lot about and adding this meaningfulness to my life, which is history. And so like when I'm on those mountains um, or... Uh, canoeing down the Shenandoah River, knowing the history of where you are makes where you are so much more magical and alive. Yes, like having exactly. that knowledge. I agree. Uh, so, um, the uh, of course, the first settlers in the valley were the Indians, and they were here for uh, documented at least eleven thousand years <sighs> before we ever came. And um, when the first settlers came into the valley. Uh, the, there were a series of stockaded Indian villages along the river, but they were all uh, in a state of uh, severe decay, uh, had been abandoned for about 100 years, and there were many of them. And um, the theory is that the uh, European diseases had, uh, you know, gone out ahead of the uh, of the settlers and the first explorers and decimated the, uh, the local populations of Indians. So when the first settlers came into the valley, uh, there were no uh, settled Indians living in the valley. Uh, there were the Cherokee in North Carolina and the Iroquois Federation up in New York, and they used the, the valley kind of as a hunting ground and a pass-through but there were really no villages or Indians living in the valley. At well, that, that time. is incredible. Yeah. So, I, one of my podcasts, one of my favorite ones is um, last year I was doing the Chesapeake Bay and I interviewed um, a man who is of the Nanticoke tribe and he does the interpretive history at Jamestown from the Native American point of view. And he kind of enlightened me a little bit on how far back the trading with the Europeans went. And I've been currently reading a little bit about um, the beginning of the fur trade up in more north in Canada mm -hmm. and whatnot. But the Europeans were contacting the coast since the 1500s. Yes. So you can see how disease would have already, I mean, how far are we from the coast? Not that far. Exactly. So it's like, wow, that is unbelievable. I wanted to ask you about the Native Americans here because I was somewhat aware of that. I know that there is a 
pre-Columbian um, site called like Lightning or Thunderbird or something? Thunderbird, the sun, Thunderbird site. So actually, I was on my noodling around on my computer the other day, and I asked, uh, what's the nearest uh, national historic landmark to my location? And it said three miles away. And it was the Thunderbird digs. From where we are right now? From where we are right now. Really? So the Thunderbird digs And were, it's private land. It's so, private land. But the Thunderbird digs were done in the mid-1970s, and it was um, funded by the National Geographic Society. And they found evidence of, of continual, constant human habitation for over 11,000 years. And uh, they found a lot of evidence. And the reason was um, the local uh, um, uh, jasper outcroppings were of very high quality. So the Indians mined that jasper because it made very high quality spear points and, and knives and tools. Incredible. And, and the spear points and, and tools were traded all up and down the east coast mm. of the United States. And because the, you could tell uh, there's a particular color of this jasper, it's a yellow. Uh, Jasper. Can you still find some today? Oh yes, uh, and the outcrop is still there. It's it's on private land, and it, it's the it, outcrop that was used by yes, these ancient cultures. Yes, yes. and it's it's been uh, you can tell it's been worked back for literally thousands of years. That, thousands. Have of you years. been there? I have not. It's on private land. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know if maybe you had gotten permission or something. Oh my god, that is incredible. Yeah, and I when I was so when I was hunting up mm -hmm. around these mountains. I was like, well, I wanted to know a little bit what was going on before. And I had read that some of the fields that are here that are now fields by these farmers and whatnot were ancient fields from those uh, people. Yes. From those, that the, and that there were actual mounds, like mound sites. Correct. But um, I guess through tilling and farm practices over the past Correct. 200 years. Correct, they got tilled down, exactly. And, and the river flooding and things like that. But, of course, the richest soil is down along the river. And the Indians would have uh, settled along uh, water sources. Mm. So where, where we're sitting right now used to be an Indian village. Really? And we know that because we can go out here just in the yard and find chippings of, no. of, uh, of uh, the stone, this jasper. And in, even in places um, where the uh, professional archaeologists have, have uh, dug in the valley or in this area locally here, uh, you can see where someone was kneeling and the chipping made no a pattern you know, where their knees were, there weren't any chips, but everywhere else were, were chips around. So, no way. Yeah. So uh, it's... it's. Uh, I love this stuff so much. Me and my, my girlfriend is really into archaeology, and we've gotten a little bit into, I mean, at a super amateur level, but, you know, we've gotten a little bit into paleontology with the fossil hunting on the Chesapeake Bay and whatnot. So we have. I've never found an arrowhead. I've never found... Well, she thinks she's found a handful of... Uh, artifacts around here mm -hmm. um those stones like working stones um have you found anything from that period? oh uh, yeah of course i uh, mean you're uh, saying you find these little napped pieces yeah yeah and we find uh spear points and arrowheads are fairly quite common <laughs> and and uh you just kind of know how to look you know and the ground has to be disturbed mm. you know so the soil is is uh, exposed and after a rain you know these things will will be uh more obvious to find 
And uh, there are a lot of people that collect mm. these these old items, and you know there are people that have thousands and thousands yes. of spear points that they've that they've collected over the years. The most unusual thing that's that I've seen found was found right out in front of uh, where we are now in the river. Um, there was uh, like literally under the bridge, literally close to the bridge out there. Yes. So there was a, this was back in the 1970s and there was a guy out there fishing and uh, he stepped on something in the river and it kind of rolled on him and he fell into the water and the guy on the bank laughed at him mm. and it really kind of made him mad. So he reached out in the water and picked it up and it was a clay fired effigy head. No. Pre-Columbian way, and uh, <laughs> and so he oh he was very knowledgeable in uh, in how to preserve this this artifact. So he took it home and kept it damp for a month, and slowly, slowly, slowly dried it out. Oh and, my! God. And uh, he took it to a. Um, well, I guess a gathering of like-minded people. Mm. You knew we're selling and trading spear points. It mm. was a big uh, gathering. It was a mm. festival of some sort. And he displayed it on a table. And a guy came along uh, and offered him $10,000 for it. And Well, he wouldn't take it. And uh, <sighs> he contacted the Smithsonian. And they were interested, but, of course, he couldn't. Prove the provenance mm. of the piece because, uh, you know, he found it himself in the river, mm. and uh, you know, it wasn't found through a an official archaeological project. Mm. But that's the most interesting piece I've, I've oh, seen. Well, I mean, you can't beat that. That's unbelievable, <laughs> man. That is unbelievable. Um, so let's move up in history. Sure. So, so you have an incredibly successful, long-standing, <clears throat> super fun um, canoe, tubing, kayaking business right here on the river. Correct. So uh, I have a river outfitting business we established in 1974. And um, so this is your 48. I want to tell you, I am... So then you just answered my question. I mean, I've been here when I was like 12. So like 20 years ago. Yeah. Because I grew up in Northern Virginia. So from door to door, it's probably an hour and 15 or an hour and a half. Exactly. And I would come here with Boy Scouts or with camping trips. And I literally, where we're sitting, so across from your outfitting, there's a road. And then there's a beautiful farm that slopes down into the Shenandoah River. And then there are those uh, Massanutten Mounds. On that farm is where I saw my first bear at like 12. Oh, I saw a black right? bear running uh -huh. as we were coming down <clears throat> the river coming around the corner, I looked up and I saw one running across and I'd never seen a bear before. You know, I grew up in Northern Virginia. Um, so because you're here on this river and there is this rich um, uh, history once the Europeans got here on the river, and then we have this town, Front Royal, that has this fantastic nickname that hopefully you'll say and not me because it's so fun. <laughs> but um, I had read that it's uh, almost notorious and that there was a preacher who came here in the 1700s who gave it the nickname. I don't know if you've heard that part, but um, yeah, tell us a little bit about the European history on the river. Equally as fascinating. Well, uh, the, the first Europeans came into the valley, uh, the first settlers, I should say, came into the valley uh, 1727. Wow. Thereabouts. And they settled uh, the German 
there were uh, mainly Germans and Swiss Germans out of Pennsylvania, and they settled in the area around Luray. And mm. then there was another group of Scotch-Irish that settled in the area around uh, Stanton about the same time. Okay. And uh, so, uh, of course, early on, it, there were farmers coming in and uh, just uh, claiming land, and the best land was along the river. Mm. So they tended to settle along the river. And um, for growing crops, and for whatnot. growing crops and mm. things like that, but um, uh, so the population uh, uh, slowly increased over the years. But these farmers, of course, uh, would uh, were subsistence farmers, but their excess they had no way of uh, getting to market because there were no roads, there was no mm. railroad, so the river was the only way to ship stuff. So uh, they would ship stuff down the river, uh, and they built special boats called gundalos. Wow. And the, the boats would be 9 to 10 feet wide and would be 40 to 60 feet in length. Some have even been recorded as high as uh, 70 to 80 feet in length. Wow. And they would uh, float these boats down the river all the way to uh, – uh, well, they, they'd uh, gather up at uh, towns upriver called uh, – uh, Bridgeport and uh, Port Republic, mm. places like that. And they would float down to uh, Front Royal. Mm. And, uh, of course, the North Fork of the Shenandoah River, we're on the South Fork, and the North Fork of the Shenandoah River uh, uh, met the South Fork at Front Royal. So there was kind of— So uh, the two sides come together at Front <clears throat> Royal? I wasn't sure about that. I so think the, I know the spot. Yeah, so there's kind of a boom town in Front Royal— and Front Royal uh, became known as Helltown <laughs> because of it was very rowdy from uh, these uh, 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 riverboat crews. A typical gondola would have a crew of three men okay. to steer the boat down the river. And, of course, there were many mills and dams along the river, uh, milling uh, flour and lumber. And, mm. and uh, so uh, everywhere there was a mill, there had to be a mill race and a uh, maybe a coffer dam uh, or a, a wooden dam across the river, usually wooden. And uh, so as a, uh, wait, wait, across the entire length of the Shenandoah, like they, from one side to the other. Yes, uh, they they'd go so across like the a river, hundred yards or something. Right, they'd build these dams across, and they'd be very low, only two or three or four feet, just enough to gain a little head, so the you could power the mill and divert the water into a mill race. Uh, which paralleled the river and then would eventually turn the wheel of the a of mill the race is the na name for the the course of the water yeah the, wa to the power. water would race through the uh, mill race to, got it uh, to power to power the mill yeah incredible and and so as these uh, gondolas floated down the river uh, all the dams were required to have sluices so they they could open the sluice and let the riverboats float through the sluice and. Uh, and not get hung up on the dam. And uh, all the riverboats had horns, uh, sometimes six or eight feet long, uh, with, that they would blow. No. Yes, to notify the, uh, the uh, mill owners and the, uh, the, the, the dam people who controlled the dams to open the sluice so that they could come through the sluice. And usually these um, gondolas would travel in packs. Okay. You know, 50, 60 gondolas down the river. So they'd be 50 or 60 in one go. Yeah. And they'd be hauling, oh, flour, um, processed products. So they'd have flour, 
or fruit from fruit trees mm. or um, rails, mm. you know, fence rails, uh, or a molasses mm. or a whiskey, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, there was an iron industry in the valley back then, mm. so they would haul uh, ingots of pig iron down the river. God. And uh, so uh, the riverboat trade was very active from the mid 1700s until 1883. Incredible. And in 1883 is when the uh, railroad came through the valley. Interesting. And so when the railroad came through, it was much more efficient to put the riverboats out of out of business. The last riverboat went down the river about 1910. Incredible. So so there were like a primitive barge kind of a thing. Yes, it was a barge. And the barges were built in, uh, they were all built pretty much the same, just a flat bottom barge with, with uh, walled sides and uh, a pointy end, not always a pointy end. And um, uh, the, they were very careful uh, milling out the lumber for the boats because when the boats got to the under, other end of the trip, which would be uh, Harper's Ferry okay. uh, usually, uh, then the boats would be torn apart for lumber. So there are uh, a lot of houses in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, that are built of this uh, gundalo lumber. You know? So, so and I then had the, read that. That is incredible. So the Shenandoah, it ends, does it end at Harper's Ferry, which then opens to the Potomac, which then drains to the Chesapeake? The Shenandoah uh, flows north. The North Fork and South Fork of the Shenandoah River flow northeast and uh, terminate at uh, Harpers Ferry, flow into the Potomac River at Harpers Ferry. Got it. And then, uh, you know, those products could be put on the CNO Canal and further shipped down to uh, Georgetown. Got it. So, so I had read um, a little bit about what you're talking about, but you're totally enlightening me on this, which is totally cool. Um, I had read that they would dismantle the boats. And then one of the most interesting parts is the crew would have to walk home. Correct. For crew, days. The crew would walk home. Exactly. And they would stop in Helltown, which was named by this pastor or priest, or I don't know what, um, I don't know what denomination or whatever, but uh, he had titled it in the 1700s Helltown because it was so wild. And it, I had read something like Front Royal had more saloons than like any other place in maybe Virginia or the general region or something like that. And I mean, didn't it have like brothels? Oh, of course. Like, whorehouses? Yes, of course. Because the crew had just been paid, you know? <laughs> and they walk up to Front Royal and they party time, party time. <laughs> and burn out their money. Yeah. And then hung over. They got to walk for days to get home. Right. God, that is incredible. Walk up the valley. Right? And is there not, isn't in downtown Front Royal, isn't there the guts, mm. the frame of one building? on the main strip, like where the courthouse is, isn't that building like one of those saloons? I don't know. Okay, I think it might be. The passage of the rapids and shallows constituted another problem, and McCoy's Falls, which impede the riverbed for several miles in Warren County, was one of the most famous of such places. Often a fleet of boats would take a day or so to navigate these falls, and the shouts and commands of the boatmen could be heard afar, echoing through the hills in euphonious tune with their bugle notes, till it would seem the great god Pan himself had come to our river. Sometimes rocks and other obstructions had to be removed, or in season of low water a temporary dam hastily constructed to back up and deepen the water, leaving a boat course open at one side of the channel. 
Indeed, McCoy Falls became celebrated in the songs and stories of the boatmen. The boatmen gave their own peculiar color and action to the river. Many of them followed boating as a profession, and as a class often were rough, boisterous, and unruly. As there was a similar element living in shanties at many places along the river, frequently trouble was fomented by their disagreements, such as when mischievous boys, after the manner of Youth Universal, threw rocks at the passing gondolas from their vantage point on the bank. The life had its hazards also. Sometimes the raft with all its cargo would be dashed to pieces by accidental collision with hidden reefs. The hopes of the owners could be ruined and venturesome members of the crew swallowed up in the swirling waters. The Front Royal newspaper published an 1870 report who said the boatmen often did a nice quiet business in moonshine. Once they brought Captain Samuel J. Simpson a keg of Applejack. The captain sent Charlie, age 15 and a half, down to the boat to get it. One boatman said Charlie was too small for such a load, but if you take a drink of this good Applejack, you can handle it. Charlie did, and it worked. The boatmen always seemed full of fun, boisterous, and clever. Front Royal editor Myler had boyhood memories of his own reaching back into the 1800s. I can remember these boats and can still hear the long-drawn notes of the boatmen's horns or their hallooing and signals on the river. I had a small silver watch, which one of the boatmen wanted me to trade for a pet deer he had on his boat. And when I asked him what good the deer would be to me, he replied, you can ride it to school. And if you don't like to go to school, I'll trade you this bear and you can start a circus. Boatmen on the Shenandoah had their wild side. Riverton, between the forks across from Front Royal, was known as Helltown because of the depredations of the boatmen who were paid off there after delivering their cargoes and boats to the railroad landing. In 1817, James Kirk Paulding wrote about a fight between a Shenandoah boatman and a wagoner. The wagoners, he said, were half horse, half alligator, part earthquake, and a little of the steamboat. The boatmen were composed of materials equally combustible and together strike fire and blow up the powder magazine each carries about him in the form of a heart. When a wagoner spending the night in a boatman's camp whistled a tune known as the Batoman robbed the old woman's hen roofs, he lost three of his grinders and gained divers black and bloody bruises. The Great Flood of 1870 By W.B. Petty, a survivor of the flood of September 29, 1870 at Noah Kite's Mill from the Stanley Herald, January 3, 1895 The death of my old friend Alfred Kite recalls vividly to my mind the part he performed during the ever-memorable flood of 1870 when he very miraculously escaped death, as well as others, among the number our correspondent and family who were forced to take passage upon the then wild waters of our hitherto placid Shenandoah in a gondola which seemed but poor protection. 
For nearly two days there had been rain, but no one thought for a moment that there was any danger that the river would overflow its banks. Alfred Kite and Robert Allishire had been busy that day loading a gondola boat at Noah Kite's mill, and it had put on 125 barrels of family flour by sundown to take to market. As the river raised up its banks, they moved the boat higher and had it a short distance below the road that ran along the high ground in front of the mill. Between 12 and 1 o'clock, we were aroused by someone calling. Stepping out into water knee-deep, we worked our way as well as we could until the storehouse was reached. The boatload of flour had been moved up as the water rose. By the faint light of the lantern, we could discern the rapid rise of the water as its height was marked on the wall until the steps were reached, then higher and higher it came until we felt we must leave for the boat or our only means of escape to it would be cut off by the window where it had been made fast. The boatload of flour was thrown overboard except one barrel and all made our way through water waist deep to the window where we stepped from the cook stove to the windowsill from which we squeezed ourselves through the opening between the top of the window and the end of the boat. It seemed but a few moments until those who were holding the boat to the window gave the unwelcome tidings that the house was moving from its foundation. All was darkness and gloom. I will not attempt to describe our feelings when our boat started with its helpless load on a seemingly helpless journey. Alfred Kite was at the stem and Robert Allishire at the stern. Either the current or the steering caused us to pass nearer the western shore of the river. We went so swiftly that it seemed but a moment when our nerves were strung to their highest tension in expectancy of what our fate would be that Alfred Kite's oar struck the driftwood that had formed along the original bank of the river with such a force as to throw him several feet into the water, thus causing the boat to swing around, going over him when he scrambled to the drift. When the boat swung around, the bow caught under the end of a large log projecting from the drift, and the force of the water kept it in place until all were safely landed, when it was torn to splinters in a twinkling. All but one of the party of eleven from the mill's storehouse survived the dark night on the floating driftwood, which had lodged in the trees on the left bank of the river two miles below Columbia Mills. In the morning, a crowd on the bank brought lumber and constructed an old-time skiff and rescued two of them, including Robert Allishire, but he drowned when jumping from the skiff to the bank. The nine survivors spent a second night on the drift, this time with a feather bed mattress which somehow had washed down from the house. They were all rescued the next morning. Not so fortunate were Noah Kite, his wife, and four children who drowned when the Kite home collapsed and washed away. Of ten people who were in the house, only three survived. It is probable that the flood of 1870 was so extreme because the forests covering the slopes had long been cleared away to feed the furnaces and forges, and no longer held water. The flood is still the worst valley flood on record, peaking at over 40 feet above normal in Warren County. Floods like these wreck havoc with Indian fish dams, navigation sluices, mills, and homes, making the early sites hard to find and making canoeing guidebooks out of date. But uh, then after um, uh, the railroad came through in 1883, 
the valley kind of settled out, uh, agricultural mm. and industrial. So industry came into the valley. One of the early industries was uh, DuPont uh, came in and built a big uh, plant down mm. in uh, Waynesboro. And that's a, the paint company, yeah? Uh, yes. Mm. So I'm, I'm quite not, not quite sure what they were manufacturing back then. But, you know, this was 100 years ago. And uh, uh, the waste from the factory was just poured into the river. Mm. Back then, this, the, the dilution was the solution to pollution, you know. Mm. And um, Yeah, this is one of the most heartbreaking points. Because, so... I think I told you a little bit. I lived in New York for 10 years. Didn't know anything about nature. Didn't know anything about trees or foraging or plants. So when I moved here, my focus was hunting, foraging, all those things, learning that. So once I started trying to learn about fishing, it was so upsetting to learn that here's this incredible river, all this history. Um, and yet there are all these warnings about not eating the fish or not eating more than two a month or something because they're loaded up with these chemicals. And we, then, yes, right. well, what the hell is that about? So, yeah. so uh, uh, DuPont uh, used mercury in their process from 1929 to 1950. Mm. And of course, uh, dilution is the solution to pollution. So it was, it was just uh, poured into the river. Mm. And um, it wasn't until 1977 that they were doing construction around the DuPont plant, up doing upgrades for the DuPont plant, they found so much mercury in the soil, mercury being a liquid metal, of course, that the mercury was pooling in the soil. Oh so God. they, uh, to their credit, they uh, notified the uh, uh, Virginia uh, Department of uh, Natural Resources. Mm. I've forgotten what it was called back. Mm. I've forgotten what it was called back then. And also the EPA got involved mm. and uh, they started testing the fish in the river and they found elevated levels of mercury in the fish in the river um, uh, from that DuPont plant down for the next 30 or 40 miles. God. So they uh, put up warnings, you know, don't eat the fish out of the river. And of course, mercury being a, a liquid metal and being a heavy metal, it settles into the sediment in the bottom of the river, and then it works its way up through the food chain. And, of course, the uh, smallmouth bass in the river are mm. at the top of the food chain, mm. and it would concentrate in the bass. And then if people ate the fish, then uh, it would concentrate in, in uh, human beings. Mm. And humans, it doesn't seem to hurt the fish, but humans... Uh, mercury is toxic to human mm. beings. It, it affects the central nervous system. Mm -hmm. In fact, people uh, back in the uh, 19th century that used to work in the hat yeah. industry, mm -hmm. you know, making hats, uh, used a lot of mercury, and they tended to get mercury poisoning, and it would uh, literally uh, drive them insane. Mm. And that's where uh, the character of the Mad Hatter yep. from Alice in Wonderland came from. So uh, that's so fascinating. So do you eat, or do you know anyone that eats off the river, or do you guys, or is it just We like, do not eat yeah. off the river. Uh, there is a, a warning for mercury. Of course, mercury does accumulate mm. in, your, in your system. Mm. So if you eat it over a period of time, it will start to accumulate in your system. So uh, uh, now, fishing it, in the river is sport fishing. It's not for consumption. Right. Now, is there mm. some is has is there some uh, way that this is dealt with over a long period of time to minimize it or to clean it? Or? So this was 1977 that was uh, it was found in the river. So uh, in 1985, we had a big flood on the river and it washed a lot of. Uh, 
uh, sediment and and uh, you know tailings uh, down the river. And uh, again, in 1996, another big flood. So in 1999, they came back and did a real thorough study mm. up and down the river for the concentration of mercury in the fish. And they found that the uh, plume of mercury had extended downriver another 30 miles or so. And the mercury concentration in the fish was actually worse uh, in 1999, even though uh, then it had been in, 1990, in 1977 even though no mercury had been put in the river since 1950. So it's a legacy issue. Man. It's going to be around for hundreds and hundreds of years. There's just no way to get rid of that mercury. You do more damage trying to get the mercury out of the sediment than you would uh, just uh, uh, trying to figure out a way of living with it. So, mm, man. So we're That's just going to have to live with it for many generations. That is rough. Yeah, it's too bad. So... Um, and uh, just uh, about six or seven years ago, uh, there was a major lawsuit against DuPont for this mm. uh, mercury pollution. Mm. And DuPont ponied up $50 million mm. to uh, uh, as compensation. Mm. So that money is being spent uh, improving boat landings mm. and um, improving the fishery. Mm. And uh, But it's... Small compensation for no, of course, know. of course, yeah. What is that? How much does that really matter in comparison to ruining this beautiful river? But for uh, the Debbie Downer of the pollution, I mean, just visually, the the wildlife is amazing here. Correct. So I mean, <clears throat> bald eagles, blue, great blue herons. Mercury doesn't seem to have affected, you know, the wildlife. Uh, this is a wonderful section of river. A lot of uh, um, national forest and farms. Uh, very little development, and uh, in fact, where we're sitting right now at my outfitter store, um, the uh, we're bordered by uh, Shenandoah River State Park. Yes, so uh, that, that. Uh, uh, covers about half of the area that borders the store, and then uh, the area across the river downstream uh, belongs to the Virginia Department of. Um, Wildlife resources hmm. and the section of a river upstream or a section of land upstream is George Washington National Forest, hmm. and then just south of us here is a private farm, 500 acre farm. It's hmm. all in conservation easement. Hmm. So uh, we're protected 360 degrees. Incredible. You know, which is very rare. Yeah. And uh, incredible. We're very, it's something we're very thankful for. Incredible, because Front Royal <clears throat> is definitely being built up. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I went and looked at the river before talking this morning. I saw a beaver sign right there, a bunch of trees nibbled down. I know there are river otters on the Shenandoah. I think when I was canoeing here last year, sorry, kayaking here last year, through your outfitter, um, I think I either saw a mink or a muskrat. It was like an explosion in the corner of my eye. I was right up against the bank. But, uh, yeah, the wildlife... Yeah, like I was saying, you got the great blue herons, bald eagles are on the river all yes, the time. Yes, and so it's, and it's changing all the time. Uh, when I first uh, started my business in 1974, um, there were very few bald eagles. You almost never saw a bald eagle. You almost never saw turkeys. Mm. And now turkeys are common. Mm. In fact, uh, uh, my wife and I have a farm south of here. And uh, 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 one day about two months ago, 
Our, a flock of turkeys came out of the woods. She counted 48 turkeys oh my God. in that one flock. Oh, my God. Well, you know they they taste unbelievable, by the way. <laughs> if you got 40 of them, it's the turkey season right now. Um, yeah. Uh, so, and then Sorry the bald eagles, uh, you know, made a uh, dramatic comeback. You, uh, I remember uh, the first bald eagle sightings we had here in the early 80s, and we were just over the moon that we had bald eagles. Mm. Now we see them almost every day. That's so awesome. Yeah, when I lived in, so where I had been living for the past five years is about 25 minutes from here, but really not far at all. It's just country roads. But uh, yeah, I was starting to see them above farmers' ponds. You know, it's just awesome. Um, let's see, changing gears a little bit. So one of the things I think is so fun, especially about your outfit, that I remember from being a little kid. Like I said, I think I came here when I was like 12 is that in your shop, you have these almost comical things that have been found in the river. Yeah. And you just showed me a box of stuff that you found in the river. So it would be cool to talk for a few minutes about just the kooky, cool, bizarre things that have been found in this river. I mean, oh. so yeah, just between you and another few outfits, you guys have, I mean, it must be thousands of tubers every summer. Yeah, tubers and uh, canoeists and kayakers. So uh, Compton Rapid is a famous place for people flipping their boats over and, and losing stuff in the river. The bottom of the river, there's carpeted with fishing poles and tackle boxes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there are people that, that uh, you know, dive that regularly, just hunting for stuff. I knew we saw, So last time me and my girlfriend were there, we were just on the banks on a walk that time. And there was a guy with snorkeling gear just standing in the at the bottom of the rapids, yeah, just like with his head down, and, we're, and we were like yelling at him, like, "What are you doing?" And yeah. he, he found He's stuff. snorkeling, you know, finding stuff. Uh, I know one guy that snorkels uh, just below Compton Rapid regularly. He's so far found eighteen wedding rings in the in the river. Wow! And the weird thing was, he found um, one little nook. Uh, a, a little cavity in a rock and there were three wedding rings in it. Wow, that's kind of magical. Yeah. That's bizarre. And then what did you show, tell, say what you showed me a whole box of? Oh, well, we we uh, 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 collect a lot of cell phones off the river. <laughs> so fortunately now today, a lot of cell phones, most cell phones are waterproof. And in fact, we've gotten to the point now where when we find a, a phone down on the river, in the river, we'll bring it back here and dry it out and see if it works. Mm. And often they work. And um, and then if somebody set their phone up properly, we can trace. You the, mean the after being that, submerged for days or weeks? Yes. Wow. Yes. Impressive. So we, we'll charge the phone and and uh, and uh, see if we can get it working. And then we we can, um, if they set their pro phone up properly, we can find out who who owns the phone. And they, they, you should see them when they come back to retrieve their phone, kissing our feet and bowing. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, uh, so uh, that's our focus now when we find phones in the river. Now, how about, find out how about old-time stuff? Old-time stuff is trash, you know. Really? So, Just yeah. like farm trash? Uh, well, old-time oh, old stuff like... Uh, I mean, in the river. In like, the river. Like, have you found old stuff? Not really, mm. because uh, the river will deteriorate it. 
Hmm. You know, I found uh, old uh, steel uh, mill wheels, hmm. you know, from the old mills. Because the mills necessarily had to be built close to the river, so these big floods would tend to take the mills out and stuff. Now, how about the thing hanging on the deck that's not found in the river? Oh, well, we found, uh, that's a, a Vietnam-era 500-pound bomb <laughs> we found in the river. <laughs> that's what I'm. That's what I was aiming at. So that was found in a debris pile. It's empty. I, I, uh, I, I surmise that somebody had it in their yard as a, a lawn ornament, and then we got one of these big storms, and it got washed into the river, and, of course, it floated. and It, it had a little holes in the side, but it would take it a while to sink. So we found it in a Did debris Did you have anyone come to make sure it wasn't live? <clears throat> well, it was empty. Oh, you could just see that? Yes. Okay, you could look through. Right. Oh but my we God. so we have it hanging up uh, here on our deck as our one of our more unusual river finds, and uh, we, when we get young school groups and we'd like to take a hammer and say say uh, well we'll test it to see if it's a dud we're gonna hit it on the end here so we'll hit it on the end <laughs> hold your ears we'll say we'll hold it hit it on the end That's but fine. um but uh, yeah no it's it's a dud for sure wow. and it's a, I've had uh, ordinance people come through and say oh yeah the uh, I had a guy come through and he said, Dad, that's a 1950s U.S. Navy 500-pound bomb. Unreal. See, I know I worked with them for years. You know, Unreal. So, yeah. uh, isn't there some, like, rusted shotguns that have been found in there and stuff? Oh, sure. Shotguns and, um, y you know, we found real, uh, you know, pistols sometimes we found in the river. <laughs> uh, I found a military M14 rifle with a full automatic selector switch on it. <laughs> Uh, you know, just stuff like that. <laughs> One of the most unusual uh, things was um, we had uh, a guy come in one day. Uh, people go out on the river and they'll they won't be dressed for it. Now this guy had on long pants, so he took his pants off. Mm. You know, and I don't know if he had uh, just his underwear or a bathing suit on underneath, but he had his pants loose in his canoe. And he, they flipped the canoe over, and he <laughs> lost his pants. So he came back in and he said, "I lost my pants in the river." And um, uh, I'd like to offer a reward for anybody that finds it. a $1,000 reward for anybody that finds, finds my pants, you know. So, you know, we got the, the word got out locally and, and a 12-year-old kid that was floating in the river found his pants and brought them back in. He had $18,000 in cash what? in his pants. In his pants. Well, is this guy a drug dealer on the on I don't the know. The <laughs> I don't know. But uh, wait, so the kid found it with the wad of cash with the in wad the of cash and contacted the guy, <laughs> and the guy came and picked up his pants and his eighteen thousand dollars and peeled off a thousand dollars. Well, and that's gave it just to the kid. some nefarious. There's that's just bizarre. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I taking a vacation from a major drug deal. <laughs> um, so um, before we move on a little bit, um, a story just popped in my head. So. One of the spots that I've camped at, both as a little kid with Boy Scouts, like with my friend's family, um, over the past few years with my sister, with my girlfriend, is this awesome, um, I think it's right here in Bentonville is what it's called. There's train tracks, there's these old train track bridge, and then you camp um, at this corner in the river at the bottom of those rapids. Yes, correct. And, and so um, last time we were camping there, my girlfriend and I struck up a conversation with some other people. They were semi-locals or something. 
They said that, so right there, bottom of these rapids, there's this real, like, almost, what, 90-degree turn in the yes. river? Uh -huh. And so the rapids flow into this 90-degree turn where the water completely becomes still. It looks like it's really deep right there. And there's enormous cliffs. Like yes. what, 100 feet? Uh, about 100 to 120 feet. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we saw a bald eagle perched up there. Yeah. So these people told us that one time they were there, and a farmer who owns the land at the top his cow fell off of that cliff and died in the water. And they said, like, the farmer was upset. And it was, I don't know if it was, the cow was now a little bloated or not, but these people said, hey, we'll j can we just have it? And they took it for the meat. Oh, really? <laughs> That's happened more than once, actually. Because it couldn't be sold because it's all, like, blown no, apart. It's all, not, like, yeah. bruised up yeah. and hilarious. Yeah. So that we that's happened, uh, to my count, three times. The cattle have fallen off the cliff into the river. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can you imagine seeing that? That's wild. So, um, so yeah, I don't know too much about you, but we talked a little bit on the phone, and I talked to some of your employees, and they were saying that you are a real world traveler mm -hmm. and have spent have traveled all over the place. And you had told me on the phone you wanted to tell this story about Pakistan. I never graduated from high school, and uh, but I went to college because I had good college boards. So I found a school in Ohio that would take me, and uh, uh, so I flunked out the first year and uh, three years. And so back then, everybody had to serve in the military. So I did my three-year stint in the military, and then got out and went back to college, finished college, and then I wanted to travel. I'd, I'd done my military service. I had a college degree. And I just wanted to go and, and have a look around the world. So I did a trip around the world, took four years. And uh, I started off by going to Alaska and working in the oil fields and making a lot of money. And uh, then uh, I went to Europe and worked in a ski resort in Austria. And I went to uh, Greece and, and worked on a cruise ship in the Eastern Mediterranean. And then I went up to Istanbul and got off the ship and started having, heading east overland through uh, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, uh, Burma, Malaysia, uh, Thailand, Singapore, and then uh, caught a ship down to Australia. But in the process of that trip, I ended up, and I, I did it alone, you know, I, I would meet people along the way. And there was kind of an underground pathway that you would follow from city to city and you'd meet people coming the other way, usually Australians and New Zealanders, and they'd say, well, you know, when you get to Tehran, here's a good place to stay. So you go to Tehran and stay in that place, and you, somebody was coming out of Meshed or out of Afghanistan, and they'd say, here's where you stay there, and here's how you get there, and here's the bus line to use. So you kind of work your way overland, you know, through those countries, which you can't do anymore. But... Um, uh, I'd gotten to Pakistan, just coming out of Afghanistan, and uh, I was on a train, uh, third class, because we always traveled third class, you know, back in the hippie days, had my backpack, and I was by myself on this train in Pakistan. It was night, it, it was a, um, a steam engine, and the, the smoke would come rolling down the, the train and in through the windows, and so everybody kind of had black 
uh, oil, uh, uh, you know, from the uh, coal, you know, on their faces. And the car, the rail cars were packed, just packed, and they had animals and and stuff and families. And and I was seated in this car right next to a window, um, and they had bars on the windows so could people couldn't climb in and out of the train. And I was dying of thirst. And of course, you can't drink the water anywhere over there. You're asking for real trouble if you do. So you you drink tea, you know, is what you drink. And finally, the train pulled into this uh, the station, and uh, here I am on the train by myself. And there's a little 12 year old kid out on the platform going chai chai, which is of course the the uh, word for tea. And I went ah, I called him over, you know. And all I had was like 50, I was low on money, you know, traveling. And all I had was like a 50 rupee note, you know, which was a lot of money back then. And, and uh, so I got two cups of tea and the tea came in these clay cups that were disposable. So once you, once you drank your beverage, you threw it out the window and the clay would just shatter and break. It was unfired clay, it was just dried clay. And the clay would just break, and it was a wonderful example of recycling, you know. But um, so I got two cups of tea, and I looked down, and the tea had milk in it in the English way, and I'd never drunk tea that way. I'd always had it with with uh, with uh, just sugar and lemon. So uh, I tried it, and it was the most delicious uh, uh, beverage I've ever tasted. It was I was so thirsty, so I drank these two cups of tea. But when I paid this kid with this 50 rupee note, he said, bring change, boom, and he was gone. And I went, oh no, that's the last I'm gonna see of that, you know? So we're sitting in the train station and sitting there and sitting there and the train's getting ready to leave, I can tell. And all of a sudden, one of the Pakistani people taps me on the shoulder and he holds his hand out and I didn't know what he wanted and and he shook his hand and held it out again so I put my hand out and he dropped all my change from the 50 rupee note in into my hand and I looked up to a, a row of smiling faces that went the whole length of the rail car and the little kid was uh, at the end of the rail car waving at me so the money had been passed from hand to hand through these desperately poor people must have been 20 or 25 people and the change was exactly right. That taught me a lesson in humility and and uh, cultural cult, culture and sharing, and uh, it was a wonderful experience. That is a very beautiful story. That's very beautiful. Um, and was that the last of what you had on you? No, I, okay. I I made it as far as Singapore, and then I ran totally out of money, and uh, so this British guy loaned me the last of his money so we could make it to Australia. So we we caught the, a ship down to Australia together, and we landed in Perth, Australia, and we had less than five dollars between us. Wow! And when then we landed. And then what? Did so you do some yeah. temporary work? Dip 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 dip. Get a job. So yeah, we, work. we got work, yeah, temporary work. And so I got temporary work and stayed in Perth for about a month and then hitchhiked across the Nullabar Desert over to Sydney, mm. had friends in Sydney. But anyway, the trip around the world took four years 
And that, that was incredible. That was my real education. Oh my God! Yeah, I can't. I can't even. <clears throat> I, I almost wish I have done. I had done something like that. What's one of the craziest things you've seen on these epic world travels? Craziest thing I've seen. Oh my goodness! I don't know what to say. Uh, 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 maybe something that like stunned you. I mean, obviously, you just told the story of <clears throat> where you were touched by the cultural beauty of. Um, you know, what, what happened regarding, um, money and et cetera. But, uh, yeah. Like, did you ever have an experience that just like floored you at, at, um, your cultural understanding or something like that? I can't, um, uh, nothing comes okay. racing to mind, okay. you know? Um, <clears throat> I, there are a couple of times there when I almost lost my life, <clears throat> You know, so when you're out adventuring like that, um, I want to hear that. Was <laughs> someone trying to kill you, or, or no? I or mean, they almost got hurt. When I was working in Alaska, one of the jobs I had was working. I was working for a geophysical company, and we doing we're doing marine operations out on the Bering Sea. So we were in this hundred foot steel boat that bobbed like a cork out on the Bering Sea. And uh, doing geophysical work, which means uh, uh, towing a, a cable. Uh, behind the boat that uh, for about a mile and a half and we had a big reel to reel the cable up on and i remember um uh, it was nighttime it was march and it was cold the water temperature was 32 degrees and um uh, we're out on deck trying to wrangle this reel reel the uh, cable back in on the reel and the, the waves were breaking over the side of the boat, knocking us off our feet as we were doing that. It was nighttime. And if and we didn't have life jackets on. And if you got washed overboard, that was it. You were gone. No life jackets. No life jackets. Oh, my God. I, I always wonder when you see images like that, how you keep your footing. Well, you don't. <laughs> so I'm holding on to this cable, feeding it on this reel, and the, and the waves keep knocking my feet out from under me. And I'm if I'd lost my grip on this reel... I'd have, I'd have been washed overboard and, and that'd have been it. So for me, um, I'm definitely, so I'm very interested in Jung, Carl Jung psychology. I'm very interested in, he was very interested in dreams. So I'm very interested in the interpretation of dreams. I've had so many dreams with giant waves, um, which have their own symbolic meaning, but, um, definitely the ocean of all of mother nature is what definitely scares me the most. So at some point in my life, I want to be on a ship like that. And then just to experience what that the the momentous mother nature, and then what popped in my head was: Have you ever heard of the painter William Turner? He was an English, I believe, seventeen hundreds. He um, he uh, he is famous for he, he would paint ships and harbors and whatnot but they were starting to kind of break down into abstraction. And I believe that in his time period, um, you know, things were still rendered very tight. So I think people thought he was kind of insane or something. Um, but his thing was really capturing light. So the way of a sunrise or a sunset or a storm or, um, or like a burning ship, like smoke. So his paintings are really incredible. But um, I remember this story where he wanted to paint a storm scene, but he wanted to know what a storm was like. So he had guys strap, tie him to the front of a ship and go out into a storm. 
<laughs> so it made me think of that that's with crazy. you talking about being out there. That's crazy. To feel it. Um, yeah, well, I guess what else could we what else could we talk about? I mean, we can go as long or as short as you want. Well, um, I, I've enjoyed I you know, I've had the <clears throat> I'm lucky in that I get five months a year off because so, we close our business in the winter. So it, it affords me the the opportunity to travel. That's awesome. You know, so I really enjoy um, going and visiting other cultures and um, uh, just kind of delving into their, you know, and I'll go to our country and we'll spend a month, my wife and I'll spend a month. Well, that is how you do you know, it. That's exactly how mm. you do it, right. And and we'll uh, we won't we'll have a general agenda, but we'll we'll just kind of wander around, mm. you know, and take local transport and mm. and uh, today with the uh, internet and computers, you can you can find really good places to stay. Mm. Airbnb is worldwide, you know, mm. and Booking dot com and VRBO and all those, you know, and you can use those to. Uh, kind of navigate now, around. I feel like I have a sense for your style of traveling, which is like immersion without a plan, yes, maybe. Yes. So I'm wondering, do you think that, I, I mean, probably to each their own, but I wonder, is it better to travel where you have a fixer? You know what I mean? Like you have a friend that lives there or or like I've gone, my mom at one point wanted to do a really special trip with me, my stepdad, my sister. So she did it through the Sierra Club and it was two weeks in Costa Rica. And we actually, for two weeks, they kind of organized everything. And because of that, we were actually, and because it's through the Sierra Club, we were with a biologist the entire time. That's so, great. That's great. Oh, it was incredible. So we would go out. It's one, it was the best trip of my life. And, you know, it's pretty expensive for her to give us that gift of that trip. So, you know, maybe we'll do one more like that. I have no idea. But uh, it definitely one of the highlights of my life. So I enjoyed that because, well, he's a biologist who is Costa Rican. It's not a guy from here. So it's like he would tell us everything about flora, fauna, um, the ancient people of Costa Rica. You know, we would go out at night um, on like uh, uh, night wildlife viewing with him. And he would, you know, we would see one of the most amazing things is you would look out of the jungle and you, it would be co you'd have headlamp, obviously. It'd be completely sparkling. And he said, do you know what all those sparkles are? No, those are spider eyes. Oh, and the whole right. jungle is covered in, in glimmering yeah, spider that's eyes. amazing. Incredible. And we'd see snakes, we'd see sleeping birds. Incredible. But so, yeah, so I wonder, so I, I, I wonder so much with traveling and hopefully at some point in my life, I'll be able to travel more uh, outside of America. Um, a lot of my family is European and still live there. So a lot of my travel was to see my family growing You're up. You're your fixers, right? Exactly. So I wonder, is it, <laughs> I wonder the philosophy of traveling, is it better to have someone who can um, help you immerse and show you these things you would never, ever be able to find on your own looking through tour books, you know, travel books, or do you just do your style where you just get there and you like kind of let the rhythm, the flow of, I don't know. Uh, I, I would uh, say... It's better to have a fixer or somebody there going on a tour. You really learn so much more. And you're, uh, you know, most people are constrained by time. Mm. You know, that's uh, my blessing is I'm not constrained by time. So I can go somewhere and hang out for a while mm. and kind of develop my own. That's beautiful. You know, but um, uh, 
uh, I, I've traveled both ways. I've gone on tours, mm. you know, and I've gone uh, on the immersion route. And I'd say for most people, uh, the tour route is the best route to go because uh, of time limitations and you can learn so much more, mm. you know, and I've learned to appreciate that more and more mm. uh, the older I've gotten. Mm. Yeah, but, um, but we still do I- immersion trips too, or we did up until the pandemic came along. Oh, sure. So, um, since you've been to so many places across the world, why are you here in Virginia? Because I love Virginia. Is it's, this where you grew up? Uh, yes. Okay. And so uh, I love it too. Yeah, it's it's uh, Virginia's got four definite seasons. Most places in the world don't have that. But so we ha- you have three years, three months of summer, three months of fall, three months of winter, three months of spring, and very very well defined seasons. Uh, it's uh, green. I like uh, I like the green. Well watered and. Um, what and, I've been, and you can get find rural areas in Virginia. We're an hour and a half from downtown DC, hmm. and yet uh, it's fairly uh, rural out here. And if you go two counties over to Highland County, Virginia, Incredible. it's the least populated county east of the Mississippi River. Highland County, Virginia. Highland County. So Virginia. My, where I just moved, I'm butted up against Highland County. Right. Yeah. So we were just in Highland County for the Maple Festival. Yeah. Because it's the higher elevation, they have different different trees they do maple tapping and black walnut tapping um uh what was i gonna say oh and something i've learned actually through the exploration of this podcast you know i grew up in virginia but in northern virginia i didn't really care about plants animals nature history i didn't care about any of that as a kid i was more interested in pranks and uh my band and my artistic side um but so something i've i've totally come to appreciate about virginia is there's so much outdoor opportunities, whether hunting, fishing, or just the outdoors. Yes. Like that blows me away because you rarely hear, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. You rarely hear people talk about how beautiful and in a natural way Virginia is. And then the regional element, the difference between the cypress swamps on the Chesapeake Bay and Appalachia over in Highland County, Virginia, is like, this is the same state. Yes. And then to have the history, it's like, you know, when I got into Native Americans, I was you know, so enamored by the Western history. But then to be like, wait a second, I grew up in a state where the history goes back 200, 300 more years. It's just, and Virginia is really quite an incredible state. It's, yeah, it's it's interesting. And out here in the Valley, uh, you know, we have Shenandoah National Park and a lot of George Washington National Forest. Hmm. And so, uh, you know. uh, I think that the national forests in Virginia, it's over a million acres. Oh, yes. Unbelievable. Yeah. To be on the East Coast, you know, a few hours, like you said, a few hours from Washington, D.C. And you you run a little south and a little uh, west from here. And, you know, you get out in those western, uh, southern western Virginia counties. They're they're pretty darn rural. Mm. Mm. Um. Speaking of seasons, so I guess we could end just saying a little bit more about the business. Um, so your season is just starting, yeah? Correct, yes. So you're late, early spring and into the fall? Yes, uh, so our busiest uh, time is uh, mid-May to mid-September, I would say, you know, right through the summer. And um, we kind of specialize. We're as big. We don't want to get any bigger. We're as mm. big as we want to be. Mm. And uh, weekends, Saturdays can be pretty busy, mm. you know. Sundays, not quite as busy. But I, I would recommend anybody 
who wants to float the river, if you possibly can, come during the week. Yeah. Because you're going to have the river more to yourself, and uh, it's going to be uh, more of uh, an interface with nature. I've done it in early October, kayaking, totally by myself. Didn't see a single person, and it was still warm enough to go swimming. Yeah. Because <laughs> one thing we didn't say, really, is that the Shenandoah River is extremely shallow. Yes, I mean, there it, are points where it's like l- less than your knee. You're right. So it, it'll average about three feet deep. Okay. Uh, there are some places that are, uh, it, it, the river uh, will get quite shallow sometimes in August, September. Okay. And you'll bump and scrape coming down the river in, in boats. But still, it's really enjoyable at that time because you can really see the lay of the bottom of the river. And, Beautiful. And and there are these old uh, Indian fish dams that are in the river. The Indians would, would no pile way. rock into the river in a V pointed downstream. A, a weir. And and they would have an o- opening at the end of the weir. So they would, and the uh, Indians would get upstream from the weir and walk in the river and just drive the fish down the river through the end of the weir. And it would make them easier to catch and spear. The weirs are still in the river. Yes. Next time I come on, I want, do, and so- can you say where it where one is? Yes. Say it. Well, uh, I mean, mile marker six. Mile marker, okay, uh, okay. On the river. So you'd even. have to go to your website, which is um, downcanoecompany.com. Downriver, downriver.com, yeah. Downriver.com. And you guys have the map on there. Yes. So at number six, you can see a weir. Yes. And there are a number of them along the river. I had no There's idea. There's another one up at mile uh, 24. Incredible. And are those... the pre-Columbian or or like when, at what time period are those probably Probably from? would be pre-Columbian, but the early settlers also took advantage of this oh, of remaining course. Indian infrastructure to help oh, build course. their their uh, coffer dams and their water diversion dams. So, Man, that's so cool. I love it so much. You know, I really have appreciated you just talking about all the history. I think that's just beyond fascinating. Um, is there any final thing you want to say before we finish? Uh, well, I would say... Okay, how about this for a final question? Is there a particular part of the river that is that you uh, find extremely interesting or beautiful that you suggest if someone comes out on the river that they make sure to hit that spot? Well, oh, it, it, uh, uh, with the Shenandoah, it's pretty much... Uh, Oh, it's through this section, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, my favorite section is upriver, uh, about mm, say uh, seven to. There's a four mile section in there that's all protected. It's e- all the lands either under uh, uh, conservation easement or national forest. Mm. Uh, I, in fact, I have a neighbor up uh, at overall. Uh, he came in the 1970s and bought 175 acres mm. right bordering Shenandoah National Park. And um, he's got about a mile of uh, frontage on the park. And he started looking around up there and properties, farms kept coming up for sale. And what he started doing is buying these farms, putting them in conservation easement, and then reselling them. Incredible. And, and so by putting them conservation Locks easement, it up. they can never be developed. They can't be broken up, and, right? And his goal is to create a wildlife corridor between Shenandoah National Park and George Washington National Forest. And so far, Incredible. 
He's put about 2,500 acres. Incredible. Yeah. And it's, a, it's the closest. So that, he's connecting the valley. Yeah. And Incredible. it's the closest that Shenandoah National Park comes to George Washington National Forest. Incredible. And so he's got about half that land in there uh, in conservation easement. It's amazing when people do stuff like that. And he and just does it on his own. And he loses money. Mm. Uh, by doing it by, by by buying a piece of land and then putting all these restrictions on it lose money. when you resell it he sells it for less than he bought it for wow well that, that's I mean, dedication that's yeah it? that's beautiful thank god for people doing stuff like that yeah that is so neat well um oh almost dropped my phone here well um yeah this has been awesome thank you so much You're and welcome, I, it's like i don't i don't really need to uh do much promotion for you guys because you guys are doing incredible here. But if anyone is in the general area around Washington, D.C., this was the spot. For people in D.C., Northern Virginia, this is like between the park and the river. These are two of the nature getaways for the Washington metro area. Yeah. So, so I'll put my plug in. Downriver Canoe Company. Mm -hmm. Downriver.com. Mm -hmm. That's it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Philip. All righty. <laughs>